If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Because that's the question we keep asking ourselves, like when people say, oh, it took 700 gallons of water to make a cotton t-shirt. Well, I'm interested in not just that infographic. I'm interested in where are they growing that cotton? What are the soil types? Is there a possibility for growing that cotton responsibly? I cannot really answer those questions unless I get to know a land base. Infographics are awesome, but there's so much more nuance in places. What is the soil-to-soil concept of circularity, and how can this sequester carbon, enrich our soils, and promote healthier ecosystems? Why is it that we have to look past the numbers and findings from our environmental impact assessments in order to really understand sustainability and what we need to rebuild a thriving planet? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. If you're not already following me on Instagram, you can find me there at Shane. I'll be sharing my ongoing learning lessons, inspirations, resources, and reminders for us to recenter because we really need to be in our best health to support this movement. So I look forward to connecting with you there. And now to our episode, let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is the founder and executive director of Fibershed which is on a mission to show how regionally grown fibers, natural dyes, and local talent is still in great enough existence to provide our basic human necessity of clothing. It's like how we want to support local food, our local farmers. It's a similar idea here, but applied to how we make our clothing. And her concept of fiber shed has since spread across the country and around the world. You'll hear more about this soon directly from her in our conversation. She's also chair of the Board for Carbon Cycle Institute. She's taught at Westminster College, Harvard University, and has created workshops for a range of NGOs and corporations. And we're not done. She's also the author of the best-selling book, Harvesting Color, a bioregional look into the natural dye traditions of North America. Green Dreamer, starting with what inspired her passion for the environment, here's Rebecca Burgess. 
Well, I, I was born in 1977, so I was pretty much a child of the 1980s. And it was at that time where Earth Day started in, <laughs> I think, the early 70s before I was born. But um, by the time I became a child in the 1980s, there was this idea put forward once a year that we would celebrate the Earth. And I always felt really confused by that. But at the same time, there was this... Um, giving that it's the good old US of A, there was like this entourage of products that would end up in local boutiques and stores in my downtown area to honor Earth Day. <laughs> and so I would end up like, huh, okay, well what are what are the what's the vernacular and the iconography of this movement? And on a T shirt, an organic cotton T shirt, I remember I was about eight, nine years old, and I saw someone had reprinted Chief Seattle's speech that we do not own the earth and that the, you know, we are, we are the earth. And he it was a forewarning uh, letter to white men um, about what would happen if we continued on this path of uh, utilization of resources without thought of the regeneration of those resources. And it's basically to sum up what Chief Seattle was saying before, you know, we became, we colonized the whole thing and created, you know, a genocidal experience to lay the foundation for manifest destiny forms of ag, yada, yada, the whole <laughs> horrible history unfolded. But I was struck by the fact that this um, Native American man had called this out. And it was on a t-shirt. And it was printed. And it was on an Earth Day celebration event, um, kind of boutique storefront window. I bought the t-shirt. Um, of course, my my father helped me purchase this t-shirt. <laughs> And um, I wore it consistently throughout my, um, until it didn't fit anymore. And it just kind of, I know it sounds strange because it came through the vector of commercialization and, and a t-shirt, but it's kind of this irony for me of where fashion and messaging and iconography and such came to me through that way that I had access, which as a young kid growing up in the USA in the suburbs, like I didn't have much access to these thought memes of environmentalism. It came through, let's celebrate the earth and it's on a t-shirt. But I have to say it was a transformative moment. And I've since then studied Native American land management, understandings of how tribes were treated, how they protected their resources for thousands of generations, what it really means to be on this continent and be responsible, um, which is a question that we haven't answered fully. <laughs> and how can fashion and textiles, because that's my hands-on passion, like that's where my skills are, that's where my interests lie. How can my relationship to textiles address some of these broader arcs of environmental justice? Yeah. So on that note, uh, what led you to then start Fibershed? Fibershed is analogous to like watershed or a food shed. It's a geography that clothes you. And what I did what I have learned from um, how generations in the past, whether they be my European ancestors uh, living out their lives in the North Atlantic or whether it be Native Americans whose land I now occupy, the Coast Miwok, all of these um, indigenous place-based cultures um, who had, like I mentioned, sustained life for thousands of generations uninterrupted by um, pollution or environmental havoc, for the most part, there's a lot of nuance in there, but um, 
the thing that sustained them was this ability to regenerate within a strategic geography, mm. uh, to be able to utilize resources within a land base and regenerate those resources so that they could return year after year after year. So I was thinking one way to start helping us define what sustainability or regeneration looks like in a textile or fa fashion system is for us makers, designers, um, even those of us who are farming to start greening and an understanding of what is the strategic geography where I source my materials. What is the soil in those communities look like? What's the rainfall pattern? How much is really possible? Because that's the question we keep asking ourselves. Like when people say, oh, it took 700 gallons of water to make a cotton t-shirt. Well, I'm interested in not just that infographic. I'm interested in where are they growing that cotton? Where, what are the soil types? Is there a possibility for growing that cotton responsibly? I cannot really answer those questions unless I get to know a land base. And I think it's, you know, it's upon all of us to get beyond. I think infographics are awesome, but there's so much more nuance in places. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, there are all these environmental impact assessments comparing different types of fibers. And of course, recommendations from different like studies will also differ depending on the factors that they take into account. But even beyond that, it sounds like one fiber doesn't like cotton doesn't equal cotton. And these yes. assessments can oversimplify our solutions if they just say cotton is good or cotton is bad. And, you know, judging how sustainable something is really requires context. Oh, Completely. Yes. And so I put a geographical context on that because water and soil are the key factors. Sunlight, water and soil are the key factors for human and all living species survival. So if we start taking a sense of in this geography, they get this kind of rain. In this geography, they have these soil types. Is this an appropriate place for cotton because of these factors? Yes, maybe no. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you just, I, yeah, context and, and just, like I said, just the idea of microclimates and bioregions, that's where you're, the rubber hits the road to me on a, a, an honest, honest sustainability question. Yeah. Um, and I feel like just nature is really complex in the way that it functions. But as consumers, we like easy answers like yes to this, no to this. So how do you think we can navigate this complexity to make healthier choices? I, I think getting in touch with your own bioregion as a, a learning lab. It doesn't mean you need to source everything from your region the way, and I kind of jumped in head first with dressing myself within fibers, dyes, and labor all sourced within 150 miles of my front door just to test the waters of what a fiber shed would be. I'm not suggesting everyone who's listening to this like necessarily try that as a method, but getting to know your bioregion, like I said, as a lab, are there farms in your region as a whole? Are you a one-day drive within an integrated food and fiber farm? Could you go and observe a sheep shearing yourself to determine what that means to you? Could you go watch cotton being harvested? Um, you know, maybe, maybe not. But what are the places where you could, could you create a dye garden? Could you use some of your compost, um, that material as natural dye material, like avocado pits or what have you? So, I'm interested in people getting resensitized to processes and materials through using their own fiber shed as a venue. Um, and then I feel like 
as you go through these processes, your neurological systems change, your hands and your relationship between your hands and your head shifts. Mm. You start doing and you start learning by doing. And then you see the world differently because the world isn't an infographic. It's not it's not even just a rote piece of journalism about the effects of X, Y, and Z. You start to realize that there's so much more to life than what we're told. And you can trust that because you've done things yourself and you know how complicated things really are. But if we don't practice by doing, we'll never really understand complexity in the deeper ways that we need to, to mm-hmm. make good choices about our fiber shed yeah. or fiber sheds abroad. So we really just have to get curious and reconnect deeply to the landscapes that we're in. It's a great, like I said, it's a great uh, lens, lab, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it for understanding the world at large. Yeah. So at Fibershed, you talk about this soil to soil concept. Can you walk us through what this means? Soil to soil is how you produce a natural fiber, in our opinion, how you utilize that fiber, well, how it's manufactured, how you utilize it, and then how it returns to the system from which it came. So soil is our lens because we focus on that as a carbon pool. Earth has five carbon pools and two um, are now utilized to source raw material. The lithosphere, where we harvest fossil carbon for oil and gas, polyester, nylon, capoline, polypropylene, mm. <laughs> all of the stretch and um, you know water repellency, all of that comes from fossil carbon-derived sources, which have been, through their refinement, increasing the concentration of CO2 in our atmosphere, of which we can no longer afford to do. The second carbon pool where we get our fiber from is the what they call the pedosphere or the soil carbon pool. It's the second largest carbon pool on the planet. And for us, uh, looking at a future that's habitable on planet Earth, we believe and not just believe, but we know uh, through science and observation that natural fiber systems have the ability uh, to not only produce material culture for textiles and fashion and composites and durable goods, but they also have the ability, if grown in under the right conditions with the best management practices, they have the ability to be systems that sequester carbon, meaning remove the carbon that's stuck in our atmosphere due to our burning of fossil carbon. We can actually sequester that in our soil. So we take heart that this problem of climate change is solvable, and it's actually solvable through regenerative textile systems. And soil to soil is like the really the framework for how we see this playing out. So you you grow your material in soil that's being regenerated or regenerating using organic practices, cover crops, um, using compost, all these natural methods for grading fertility and productivity. You create these materials. Hopefully what our goal and what we're slowly picking away at is you process materials through renewable energy powered milling systems. So, We are starting to slowly see this happen in our community, and we want to see it happen at large where people can process materials within a bioregion, and then those materials are worn. When you end all opportunities for reclamation and recycling, (laughs) those materials at their very, very, very end of their life, when they can no longer be reclaimed or recycled, um, then they can return to the soil. And that's 
the carbon, you know, really that needs to go back to the soil is in our clothing. If it came from, it's carbon that came from the soil and then we intend to return it to that soil. And thus we regenerate the very system that we're utilizing for what we need. Yeah. So it really enriches the ecosystem instead of taking away from it. Yes. It's instead of mining our, our soil and mining uh, our world in <laughs> um, all the ways that we mine, um, it's about putting energy and life back into things and putting more of that life than from, you know, more than you took to begin yeah. with. And there are also no like toxic chemicals used as you produce these or process these fibers so they can safely go back into the soils without leaching toxic chemicals. Yes, that's what we've started to prove out. We've been able to make 100% climate beneficial wool cloth with uh, no slashing agents used on the looms, no finishing agents for um, stain resistancy or wrinkle issues. Um, we've we personally in our fiber shed, I can say for for our from our perspective, is that our community has been building out systems that do not rely on any of the eight thousand synthetic chemical compounds that are typically used in the industry today. And it's yeah. very possible and doable. What do we know about um, the impacts of? these fabrics that do have these toxic chemicals, what happens when they go back into the soil? Like intuitively, it's obviously not healthy for the soils, but do we have any studies showcasing the impact on the health of ecosystems? Well, what we do have right now is um, some biological, what they call molecular marker tracking, where by people who are washing textiles, let's say you bring it home from the store, you wash it in your washing machine, the water um, of the affluent from that washer goes into your public sanitation system. Um, eventually, it might become part of, like in our area, um, what they call um, a biosolid, meaning all of the municipal treatment, whether it's black water or gray water, gets turned into what we call a biosolid. And we're seeing biosolids spread out on our farmland. Um, this is something that goes on in the Bay Area um, with San Francisco and uh, Oakland waste, um, a lot of, for instance, San Francisco's biosolid waste goes back onto farmland in Solano County. So we have a woman studying the, the biosolid waste. What are the synthetic compounds that have you know, gone through maybe your washing system from your clothes and ended up on farmland? Um, right now, we're just at the marking stage. And what we are finding is azo dye residuals. We know azo dyes are endocrine disruptors. We don't know at what levels in our soil that that would create problems for species, including ourselves. But what I do know is that we are seeing these chemicals end up on farmland. Some municipal water ends up leaching back out into uh, estuaries and bays. We do know that a lot of estrogenic compounds are in our bays and waterways, which have changed the reproductive health of fish and amphibian life and thus ourselves. <laughs> yeah. um, so the tracking is there. The question mark is always the concentration and how that concentration of material, synthetic compound, is or isn't affecting humans. Um, what we do know, though, is that we have some of the highest rates of environmental cause, cause death now on planet Earth. It's far surpassing um, the diseases of the old world, which might have been bacterial diseases. Now we see that um, we have young, let's say, I don't know how to say this, but um, boys who 
in utero. So a, a, a baby who is um, male in utero in its mother is highly sensitized to estrogenic compounds. And some of the reproductive health specialists that I've talked to um, from Mount Sinai and UCSF have said that it's very serious how much estrogenic compound is being um, brought through a mother's system and that this is affecting, um, they say, the anogenital distance, um, penal size, male play behaviors being hugely impacted, meaning boys getting exposed to too much estrogen in utero is changing changing boys completely. Um, so uh, some you could have lots of arguments about <laughs> the impacts of that, but what is we know it's happening. Mm. So that's a concern for me is that we're releasing plasticizers through our textiles, all these plastic items of clothing, all the inks that we use to screen print inks, all of those have phthalates. All of these plastics are estrogenic. The dyes are estrogenic. All of these screw with the human endocrine system, which is our hormonal balance system. So yeah, doesn't sound good. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, you, your project makes me hopeful because fiber shed is now a, it's been this concept has been adopted by communities across the globe. Um, what's been your personal biggest challenge building this project out? Well, there's a lot of incredulity. And, and I understand that people have gotten used to very large brittle systems. And they've also gotten very used to people, particularly women in developing countries, making their clothing for cheap. And even women in this country in North America are very expectant on this price of certain clothing items to continue to be the price that they are. And so I get a lot of pushback when I talk about environmental justice and equity, and I put it under the lens of you might have to pay more for your clothing. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I don't want to pay more for my clothing, but I want environmental justice, of course. And it's like, well, you know what? You have to make some choices. Not everything is about our comfort, like our, our monetary or physical. Sometimes we, as people in the West, have to stretch. Um, we're not used to stretching. We're not used to creating discomfort. We're all about more comfort and cheaper. So I think I, I'm having to push. Um, I'm looking for ways to healthfully push on that boundary and make it seem comfortable and exciting, like discussing cost per wear, like you could spend more on that item and keep it longer, and it will actually cost you the same amount of money as buying a cheap thing and throwing it away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, get, I think the issue really is that, um, that the mindset has become so dependent on fast, uh, cheap, and prolific. How do you think we can move forward to shift like society's mindset on this? Because people innately love new things, and when they can get it for cheap, like... It's easy for people to choose that if they don't understand this full picture of what's going on. Yeah, I think it's a multifaceted response. We have to make the full picture more palatable, more understandable. The way organic food uh, caught, you know, the attention of mothers, especially they were the, some of the first to take organic food into their refrigerators and cap cupboards because they wanted their children to be safe. I'm wondering about putting an ingredients list on clothing, like is on our food, because the organ skin is the largest organ of the body and the impacts to our freshwater and our farmland and our air due to the textile industry are pervasive globally. Um, so the cleaner our clothing, the cleaner our biosphere. So I'm curious about, yeah, how to communicate complex ideas 
and make them palatable to a larger health conscious audience. I am interested in making mending and repair more fashionable so people could feel the confidence to invest in a higher item, higher priced item. I've been thinking about mending bars, like places where you can come and drink a beer and mend your clothes. <laughs> um, maybe you mend your clothes and then have a beer. I don't know. Um, but anyway, just thinking about ways to socialize these novel behavior changes and make the social component of use interesting to people again, how to come together and enjoy life while having fewer items of clothing and taking on a culture of repair or like over dying. If you stain your clothes, why don't we just all get together and like harvest the weeds in the garden and make a dye pot? I mean, this is very doable and there's some beautiful natural dye colors out there in the world that um, could make our clothes live longer as well. So refashioning um, is like what I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a lot of us that need to probably approach this from every angle and see what we can do. But it's conveying of scientific information to the public. It's also the changing of behavior and culture. But for sure. What do you think it'll take for you on a personal level to help inspire this mindset shift? Hmm. <laughs> Lots of green tea. Um, I, I just think, yeah, staying hopeful about the fact that this is a long arc. Um, and I, so hope really is contingent on patience, but in patience, because I already have this sense of urgency. It's been my whole life that I have felt this situation of climate change bearing down and it's an exponential nonlinear event. So what concerns me is people kind of been experiencing the climate change as a, as a nonlinear event and it's about to get real and it already is in many parts of the world. There's like 600 million people in India who no longer have clean or access to fresh water because the glaciers melt so fast mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have their snow melts melting and quicker than ever. So like their rivers are not as a, you know, surface water is changing. And I think you know, the heat of the planet is, um, creates this sense of urgency in me that for me, the, the long game is what I have to remind myself of and not be so attached even to my lifetime, uh, that I just have to work as hard as I can to support other people carrying this forward. And sometimes that's hard because when you feel urgent, you just want to do it all yourself. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, so personal balance. <laughs> how do you how do you stay hopeful and patient even with this sense of brewing urgency so that you can keep doing everything that you do? I have to remind myself that I'm not effective when I'm coming from urgency upon every task. Some tasks you need to put it into fifth gear. But I think knowing which tasks need a slower gear and which tasks need a fast gear not living life in one gear, but knowing when to change and transition. Um, and then the patience is, you know, just looking at larger um, social movements and how long they took and actually how many people do lose lives trying to make good things happen. I'm not trying to murder myself or expect anyone else to in this movement, but I'm just looking at these bigger, longer arcs of social justice and what it took and people are losing their lives in the textile industry. That's the reality. So in a way, I, I do have to just, though, be patient, though, even though this is a dire situation that I know that um, 
things take longer than sometimes one one person's life can can offer to the movement. Yeah. So in the bigger picture, what do you think we need most to accelerate towards uh, a sustainable and thriving fashion industry? The most immediate is changes in individual purchasing. Um, that and, and and individual reuse patterns, um, meaning don't throw it away, keep it in play. I think we can all just start there. How we care for our clothes, not using perfume-ridden laundry detergents with phthalates in them, so we're not polluting our neighbors and our groundwater. Um, I feel like that starts. That's really key. And then if you do happen to work in policy, I think we need a lot of regulation around certain kinds of chemistry. So um, if, if there are people out there who are interested in the politics of this, there's a lot of room for making changes. Like in New York and California, they're going to put a warning label on clothing with plastic in it mm. <laughs> that says this might pollute your ocean. So please consider that before purchase. So we need a lot more warning signs uh, to go off. And that's generally a, a political or legislative move. Uh, so again, that's if that's your specialty. For designers and makers, I think sourcing materials that you know the story behind them and getting to know the story personally, maybe not just taking someone else's word for it. I think those are the three main pieces I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Lots to work on, <laughs> but we look forward to learning from you. And um, what's next for you and Fibershed that we can look forward to and support? Well, if anyone's in this, uh, the North Bay, uh, the Bay Area, November 10th, we have a wool symposium that happens every year, and we will be discussing topics relevant to the design community as well as how to manage um, ecological systems in the face of fire uh, in California, and how our grazing communities are um, part of potentially solving for some of the catastrophic fire that we're seeing. So we need sheep and goats. <laughs> and we'll be talking more about how other cultures around the world do fuel load reduction with animal grazing animals that produce fiber. And the next steps for just um, engaging with the org, we have a calendar um, on our website and there are a lot of people putting events on. If you don't live in the Bay Area, uh, there is possibly an affiliate in your neighborhood. And on our Fibershed website, www.fibershed.org, there's a list of all the affiliate communities that are trying to organize. And you could like, you know, if you're interested, lend a hand. Um, community organizers always need help building relationships between artists and farmers. Um, yeah, there's lots of ways. <laughs> Super exciting. So that's Fibershed.org. And where can we follow you on social media? We're uh, on Instagram at Fibershed um, underscore. And we are on Facebook um, yeah, those are the two portals. <laughs> Before we go into our final five, I wanted to let you know, we recently confirmed that we'll be giving away a compostable smartphone case to three randomly selected subscribers to our newsletters. These cases will be from Pila Case. The founder actually shared his expertise on Green Dreamer podcast back in episode 19. And I personally have been using Pila Case on my phone for more than three years, and I don't foresee needing to change it anytime soon. So I love it. I think you'll too. Make sure to sign up at greendreamer.com with your email so I can let you know if you've won. Besides that, you'll also receive weekly Sunday emails from me with highlights from the podcast. I hope to catch you there. And for now to our final five, let's power through. 
What's one inspiring publication or social media account you follow? I really enjoy Jacobin Magazine. It's a magazine that actually doesn't have a ton to do simply with the textile industry, but it's about social movements and um, political history globally around how people have organized to successfully do things that have made life better for all. Uh, it's a publication out of Brooklyn. Let's see, in terms of my Instagram feeds, um, gosh, I'm sorry I can't name a handle off. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Wing in a Prayer Farm is great. Um, yeah. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Uh, I think that varies day to day depending on what I need to hear. And I just... But I'm, I think that I stay open with just encouraging myself. Like, oh, how are you feeling? Like, just check in. How mm. am I feeling? Yeah. Okay. Feeling that way. Okay. Well, then I think I need to do this to support me being, feeling more um, stable in my work. So what does that need look like? So yeah. it's just a constant moment to moment check in. And on a similar note, what's one must do for your health, either daily or weekly? Uh, yoga and hiking. And they are multiple times a week endeavors. <laughs> yeah. What's one simple action we can take for our planet's health this week? Mm. Wear less plastic and wash plastic less. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. What makes you most hopeful for our planet right now? Oh, uh, the immune response, I call it. People who don't really care that much that it, everything's breaking down at the national level. Some people are just having to put that aside and do their local organizing work and use their frustration as fuel. And I see that across the generations. It's not just the youth. It's like everybody seems to feel like it's a hands-on deck moment. And even if they are just feeling despair now and again and have to remove themselves, I still see people coming back into the game and just being like, you know what? I'm tired. Um, I'm just going to keep going though. And I hear that more and more. And um, it makes me feel like humans do know how to respond. And I trust that we do. We have to trust ourselves. Yeah. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Oh, just support yourself each day with getting one thing to do checked off your list that's going to make you feel better about tomorrow. One thing at a time for a better tomorrow. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable key takeaways from this interview, as well as links and resources at greendreamer.com 61 for episode 61, which, by the way, you can access any of the show notes directly by going to greendreamer.com slash the number of the episode that you want uh, show notes for. So I realized that I never really mentioned that, but that's an easy way that you can head to the show notes. It's just by going to greendreamer.com slash the number of that episode. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And again, you can follow me on Instagram at Kamea Shane. And finally, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. <laughs>